Mike, and, and welcome to our ACF uh, series, now appropriately renamed the Economic Policy Challenges for President Biden and the 117th Congress. This is our 31st from Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers, who kicked it off in April, eight months later to Bob Carroll, who has held my favorite position in the Treasury Department, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Analysis, the end of 2003 to 2008. Why my position, the top economist working on tax policy. Tax policy, of course, critical for capital formation, economic growth. Bob, to illustrate my bias, thanks for your book, Progressive Consumption Taxation, the Ex-Tax Visited, published in 2012. The rest of the audience may not know, but you talk about the X-Tax developed by David Bradford, who preceded you as DAS almost three decades earlier. Over the weekend, you and I joked about time passing. Well, Dave contributed to two books we edited, one, The Consumption Tax, A Better Alternative in 87, 1987, and New Directions in Federal Tax Policy a few years earlier. Just for the record, I gonna quit until we have a progressive consumption tax, which hopefully will replace the income tax and it would give us a stronger economy. Bob is now co-director of Ernst & Young's U.S. National Tax Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, a mouthful, also known as Quest, which every Friday publishes U.S. economic conditions and outlook. Remember Harry Truman once said, one of my economists say on the one hand, the other say on the other hand, what I need is a one-handed well, Bob can give us a straight answer, a forward update on the economy. And since I'm already over my time, let me now turn it over to Bernard Chebby, our Executive Vice President, Chief Economist, who will ask direct questions and get direct answers. My apologies for rambling on and on, um, but we've got uh, Pinar now and Bob to tell you the real story of the economy. Pinar. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Bob, joining us today. Um, I don't know about the direct answers. We will let Bob decide that. Um, let's first start, if you don't mind, let's first start with uh, the discussion of the current, current economic condition. I know you and your firm are closely monitoring the economic indicators. And based on the most recent data, how is the US economy doing? Any specific indicator making you worried or vice versa pointing to a strong recovery? And this is more like reading the tea leaves, but. What are your expectations for 2021, assuming no significant policy change? Yeah, thank, thanks so much, Mark, for the introduction. Thanks for the question. It's, it's a really a great pleasure to uh, you know, be able to participate in the webinar. Um, ACCF has been a, just a great organization um, that I've followed over the years. I, I go to some of Mark's uh, salon events uh, uh, in the evening, which are just spectacular. Um, something that, that I, I personally enjoy, enjoy quite a lot. And I think uh, the ACCF has just made a great contribution to the, to the public uh, policy debate over a, a decades-long uh, time period. So I do want to do, do acknowledge that and say that. I think that's a, an important thing to, to say. Um, in terms of the economy, the, the economy is, um, you know, all things considered, it's, it's, it continues to do uh, uh, quite well. Um, it's certainly facing some headwinds, which I'll, I'll talk about um, in, in some detail. But um, um, you know, all things considered, it's doing uh, uh, remarkably well. Um, you know, the the economic news, the way I think about it, is almost every data point that uh, that has been released uh, since um, 
let's say since April, since the lockdown in March and April, um, has been positive and has been uh, g- generally positive. And it's been better than uh, what economists had forecast, what economists thought, uh, where we, where they thought we would be. If you take just one number, um, uh, the CBO uh, projection for the unemployment rate that they made in, in July, um, they thought the unemployment rate would be um, 10%, or a little over 10% at year end. As, as we all know, the unemployment rate is at six, was 6.7%. In, in November, uh, suggesting a, a significant, uh, certainly, you know, still high, still elevated. We'd like it to be lower. Um, it, it indicates there are some some issues for the economy, but but improvement has been much faster than I think virtually anyone thought it would be, and and so that goes to the resiliency uh, of the of the U.S. economy in the face of a, a lockdown, a pandemic, and and the recession that that we've seen. Uh, it has been very much a, a K-shaped recovery. Um, and in a couple different ways, um, in terms of uh, uh, you know different business sectors, some doing well, some actually accelerating uh, in terms of their growth and their prospects during the recovery, taking advantage of COVID. You know, online retail kind of comes comes to mind. Uh, some of the technology has has uh, firms have done done real well. Some of the technology sectors have done real well. You know, but but other other sectors have not, and we kind of know who they are. It's those sectors that rely a lot a lot on interpersonal connectivity, interaction. It's the services sector. The services sector clearly uh, remains in recession and 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 is uh, continues to languish. It's aviation, tourism, uh, air transportation, um, hospitality. Um, some segments of retail are are doing better than other others. You know, you know, and and. You know, the, the labor market, I mentioned the 6.7%, it's continued to do well through November, probably through early early December. There, there's some indication of some headwinds. I think the, the surge in cases, some the renewal of, of restrictions in, in various places across the country are, are creating uh, a, some headwinds. So that's a, that's a concern. Um, the, the unemployment insurance data has remained elevated and has ticked up. Uh, last week, by a, more than a hundred thousand increase in UI claims, so so that's a concern. The elevated level of UI claims itself suggests there's some sluggish sluggishness in labor markets. Um, but when you look at other data, you look at let's say the personal income data, and you see that uh, employee overall employee compensation in the economy, notwithstanding the the recession in the services sector. The continuing recession in the services sector, uh, you see unemployment, you see employment compensation rising to pretty close to pre-COVID levels. You see proprietors' income rising uh, pretty close to pre-COVID levels. You see overall personal income above pre-COVID levels. That, of course, includes transfers, which you know, aka uh, the stimulus and uh, uh, that was approved in March and and paid out and continues to be paid out in some form. Um, you know. One of the danger signs on the horizon is some of that stimulus, some of that support provided to the economy, the extended unemployment insurance, some of the loan forbearance is, is coming, uh, is going to, some of, a lot of that's going to come to an end at the end of December, and that, that poses some, some risks to the economy. Um, another thing in the personal income data, when, when you look carefully at it, is you see consumer spending has, has continued to uh, be relatively strong and support, so provided a lot of support to the economy. Um, retail sales numbers came out this morning. Month over month, they were down. Uh, the last month, they were the revised number was down the month before. But year over year, retail sales in November were up 4.1%. If you were in China, 
that's typically the way um, that government releases its data or, or examines it. it's year over year as opposed to month over month. So that's just kind of an interesting, um, uh, interesting uh, observation, let, let's say. Um, Another thing in the personal in the personal income data I want to point you to is is not only is consumer spending up to this point provided support to the economy, but savings has really ramped up. When we had the lockdown, um, a lot of precautionary savings. Um, it's it's probably twice. It's running month to month about twice its normal rate pre-COVID. It was higher earlier on in in let's say May, uh, June, and July, but still it remains about two times what it typically is in terms of a, a level. And so when now that we have the vaccines coming, a Pfizer ex, ex vaccine and deployed, Moderna vaccine about to receive uh, emergency authorization, uh, uh, apparently, and, and, and the antivirals and uh, us able to, to deal with the virus in a much better way, the light's at the end of the tunnel. And when we get to March, April, and May, uh, there's the expectation that that savings will unwind. It will be unleashed back into the economy and will help really help provide a significant boost to um, consumer spending and overall to the economy. Um, we, there's, I, I don't think very many economists expect anything close to an, a contraction. You know, the fourth quarter, certainly not. The first quarter of next year, certainly not. They do, do expect there's a, an expect, expectation that growth will slow from the four or five percent range, probably in the fourth quarter. You know, the, the last three weeks of December are a little bit weaker, probably, than, than was uh, anticipated. Um, you know, maybe growth slowing to the, the 2 to 3% range in the first quarter. Overall growth in the fourth quarter ex- is expected to be, uh, I'm sorry, overall overall growth in 2021 is, is expected to be around 4%. So that suggests the second, particularly the third and fourth quarters are going to be real strong. Um, and we're going to come out of this um, uh, do, doing much better. Um, the other part of the K-shaped recovery, which is worth mentioning very quickly, is the, um, you know, not only do we have the segmentation of different uh, business sectors, we also have segmentation across um, different parts of the um, uh, income distribution or households or, or those working in the services sector, uh, which, which often will, often more often than not, are people in the, in the lower quintile, the lower two quintiles. Uh, they're, they're, they're taking it on the head. They, they are, um, that's where the unemployment is. And then the other thing to mention is the um, the labor uh, participation rate is um, it has been falling recently. In the November report, it fell two tenths of a percentage point, and it's falling among uh, women, among minorities, and so that that's a concern. So why don't I stop there? Uh, can I thank you for this partly good news? I will say. Yeah. Um, so before we proceed to discuss future potential changes, I want to get you maybe on record. Um, with the change in administration, tax reform talks have picked up, especially on the corporate side. Uh, before, um, again, we proceed to discuss that, in your professional opinion, the Tax Reform and Jobs Act of 2017 had a positive or negative impact on the economy? I know with all the major things that had happened, aside from the reform, like the trade wars or the pandemic, it's, it might be hard to give a straight answer. But can you give us something that points either to a negative or positive moment on the economy? Yeah, I, yeah, I think at, at this stage, it, it is really hard to say uh, what, what uh, on net what the effect of the TCJA was you know, at, at this stage now. Um, a lot has happened between then and now for, for sure. Um, but but when you look at at um, the, the end of 2017 into 2018, you know let's say the into 2019, uh, notwithstanding 
you know, the, uh, the difficulties in the trade space. Um, what, what we, I think what we did see is we did see an uptick in investment. I think that's, that's pretty uh, clear in the data. Was it huge? Was it, was it an enormous uh, uptick in investment? You know, per, perhaps not, um, but it is discernible. It is noticeable. Uh, I, I think people have looked at this carefully, Ken, you know, would say that there's, there's probably a, the, the TCJA uh, did um, uh, create an incentive for, it certainly had an incentive for more investment. And I think that's likely what we saw. It prov- probably provided some support, uh, you know, to the economy in, in 2018 and, and, and into early 2019 in terms of GDP growth. That's a little bit harder, harder to see. Uh, it, it is the, it, I think it is the case that it probably helped extend the, you know, uh, uh, the longest peacetime economic expansion in the nation's history. And that probably, uh, uh, you know, that, that extension of that expansion provided assistance support to uh, particular uh, groups, cohorts, if you will, in the population uh, in terms of employment and wage gains, um, particularly among uh, women and, and minorities. So, so I think those, that's kind of where I would come out on that. Um, then let's move on this tax reform discussion. Uh, President-elect Biden's camp has been promoting tax increases on the wealthy as well as corporations. There has been some analysis out there showing various impacts of his proposal on the U.S. economy. Uh, what are your expectations about the proposal's economic impacts? Are there like specific things that the current modeling is missing or doing really well highlighting the impacts? Yeah, it's... Um... You know, and a number a number of uh, groups have looked at the economic impact of the Biden proposals. There are a number of analyses that are out there. The Tax Foundation has a very nice analysis that looks at, let's say, just the tax side. And uh, as I recall, their analysis finds that uh, the, the Biden tax tax proposals uh, would uh, reduce long run GDP by one and a half percent. So that gives a sense for kind of what the effect or impact of the tax side could, could potentially be the adverse impact. Uh, I think it's important to, uh, to note that um, the way the Biden uh, during the campaign, and, and I think we'll see this uh, in the spring uh, once he's in office, um, the way um, his domestic policy agenda is working, he doesn't have a tax uh, plan uh, per se. He has a variety of tax proposals that are going to potentially be used to pay for different things on the spending side. So I think it's it's probably important to look at the tax proposals in combination with different domestic policy uh, uh, agenda items on the spending side or, or other domestic policy agenda items. When you look at the analysis done by the, the Penn Wharton uh, a budget model group up at the uh, up at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Ken Smetter's group. Uh, they they uh, did look at a, a combi- the combination of tax and spending programs, including immigration, and they found kind of a, a more, um, um, you know, let's say a, a neither positive nor negative impact of the of the combined effects. Um, um, you know, w- when you look at, at it in its totality, um, there are a couple of um, uh, other analyses out there um, that that use more of a d- demand side framework that find that the spending. Uh, side of, of what he's proposing, what, what Biden's proposing, will will provide a significant boost to the economy in the near term, while the economy is well below full employment, and that that kind of kind of does make sense to me. They also find a rather large, what I would call rather large, positive effects of the combined tax and spend uh, of his policies. Um, 
after the economy gets gets back to full employment, and, and that I'd be a little more circumspect about some of those those results. Um, switching to a specific part of the tax reform proposal. So on the business side, with our current corporate rate, if I'm not wrong, we are somewhere here close to the middle in uh, OECD rankings. Uh, I suspect the 21% rate will be under much scrutiny under the new administration. So what are your expectations about corporate rate? Because I think during the Obama administration, there was a talk of 28%. Um, Obviously, various tax provisions might be also on the chopping block. Which provisions, in your opinion, has critical importance in combination with the rate? Yeah, so, so there's, there's a lot underneath that question, and, and probably the place to start would be Georgia. I think what, uh, you know, one's crystal ball and the accuracy of that crystal ball, and, you know, then the variance of estimates is really going to depend on, on what happens to the two Senate races in Georgia. If, they, um, if, they, um, if there's a Democratic sweep and, and you have a 50-50 uh, Senate, um, then that's kind of one one outcome. If there's a Republican sweep uh, and and it remains a you know kind of a you know that then then that that's kind of a different outcome. And I think if the Republican sweep, it becomes harder to uh, to really execute on um, a lot of the the tax increases uh, that uh, Biden proposed during the, the campaign. Um, certainly, the 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 top line rate. The um, the rate uh, going up to twenty eight percent is um, probably that's one would look at is is business tax provisions and, and that's kind of a centerpiece um, that to, to that together with changes to guilty I think would would be kind of particularly important to to keep an eye on um, I would mention that there are other other uh, provisions that are changing during this period um, the the uh, amortization of R and D which are not Biden. Uh, provisions there, there are TCJ provisions where we move from expensing for uh, R and D expenses or expenditures um, in 2022 amortize over five years or 15 years, depending on the nature of those of the 174 section 174 expenses. Um, a more stringent uh, net interest limitation, um, EBIT rather than EBIT, EBIT, you know that that sort of thing. And then we have a phase down of expensing, which uh, begins to kick in. And, and those provisions, I think, are also, uh, one needs to keep an eye on those. Those, those could be very, very impactful going, going forward. Um, thank you, Bob. We also have a lot of um, uh, members who are on the energy field. And I just want to you know, change the discussion a little bit to the carbon tax side. And I know you have uh, also been closely watching the carbon tax discussions, even modeling it. Uh, many still think that U.S. carbon tax is not very likely. So, however, the president-elect has been talking a lot about a border adjustment tax. And according to the experts, it's very difficult to have a border adjustment tax without a carbon tax, without violating WTO rules, because the costs are not very apparent. Um, what are your expectations about a carbon tax? And how should such a tax impact the U.S. economy? And I know your answer will depend on how do we recycle those revenues through the economy. But what are your general expectations? Yeah, I think in terms of the likelihood of a carbon tax moving forward, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly hard to say. It's, um, you, know, I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I, I work for a, a former President Truman. I, I have two hands. But, but on the one hand, you know, it's it's. A lot of policy economists, uh, you like value-added taxes. We like carbon taxes. They really do um, help align incentives uh, in, in a manner 
that addresses uh, externalities in the case of a carbon tax or addresses growth in the case of, of a value-added tax being pro-growth. And then you have to balance that against a, a variety of, uh, of other things. Let's say distributional effects. Carbon taxes you know, might be viewed as, as regressive. Uh, value-added taxes might be viewed as regressive and you would need to do other things uh, within a, any package to, to address that. Um, in terms of the likelihood, you know, the, the outcome in Georgia will, will be a factor, but maybe not a big factor, wh whether carbon taxes would ha uh, carbon tax would have traction in the coming year or two, um, you might not be that dependent on, on what happens in Georgia. I would tend to think a more aggressive uh, 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 foray into the environmental area uh, would, would occur if there was a democratic sweep in Georgia than, than otherwise. I think that's, that's, that's not, a, you know, uh, wouldn't, shouldn't be surprising uh, to, to, to anyone. Um, I think with a, one of the attractive features of a carbon tax is it raises significant revenue. Um, we've seen a, a worsening of the, the federal government's fiscal imbalance with uh, the very significant amount of COVID relief provided um, uh, with the four acts, you know, uh, enacted in March. Um, we have a, a CBO has estimated a $3.1 trillion increase in the deficit um, uh, for fiscal year 2020 uh, due to the COVID relief. The debt held by the public is uh, 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 estimated to be 100% in 2020, rather than 80, 80, roughly 80% prior to COVID. It's estimated to uh, reach 195% by the end of the, uh, by, by, by uh, 202050. Um, so a carbon tax raises a hundred, uh, raises a trillion, trillion, trillion and a half at kind of a $25 a ton level, depending on how it's phased up and, and phased in. And, and uh, that's a significant amount of revenue. So, so that's, that's, that makes it attractive. Um, it, you mentioned the, the revenue reflow is really important, how the revenues are used. Um, if a carbon tax is, if the carbon tax revenue is used to uh, finance or fund uh, pro-growth tax policies, it can provide a significant boost to long-run economic growth. And, and there are studies, uh, including an EY study, uh, that, that, that shows that, that quite quite directly. It could also be used for infrastructure. Um, and that's kind of an alignment of similar policy uh, goals, objectives. And that also is conducive to, uh, to, to growth based on uh, the analysis that, that we did uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and so, so it, it does align a number of different policy objectives, addressing the fiscal imbalance, um, a variety of pro-growth policies. Infrastructure is a priority of, of the new administration, just as it was a priority of the outgoing administration. Their ability to execute on that might depend on, on having the revenue to go along with that. And a carbon tax would, would also address climate change. And it would do it in a way that emphasizes incentives, getting the incentives right, uh, as opposed to more of a command control regulatory approach uh, relying on markets and the price mechanism to uh, to uh, address car CO2 emissions. Uh, since you mentioned the infrastructure, I think that's a good uh, area to finish this discussion because sure. I, we are running out of town. So there's one policy both parties can agree on, and that's obvious, the infrastructure. Uh, previous CEA, Jason Furman, suggests that infrastructure uh, could be used as a help, you know, to help the economy to rebuild and reshape for the future. So obviously there will be disagreement regarding the type of infrastructure investments. There's no doubt about that. What do you think will give the U.S. economy the jolt it needs? And what type of investments should be prioritized under infrastructure investments? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little hard hard for me to say kind of what type of what type of infrastructure spending would would be more desirable. I would say in a the way I would answer that is in a really in a very low interest rate environment where the government can borrow at, at very low cost, at least in the near term, uh, it's 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 not inappropriate and it's probably appropriate for it to find um, ways to help bring the economy back to full employment, to help boost economic growth. It, 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 you know, and borrowing is it seems like a reasonable way to go about that in the in the current environment, and and the it should do so in a, in a way that's that's adding the greatest boost, that's making the greatest use of the borrowed funds to drive um, drive uh, to bring us back to full employment or otherwise uh, drive drive economic growth, and so so pursuing policies like infrastructure. Um, and you could probably look, look at a, a variety of tax policies that would also be pro-growth, um, you know, to, 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 to use the borrowed funds uh, very wisely. Um, so it's, it's very consistent with a, a pro, pro-growth agenda. Thank you, Bob. And I'll turn it over to Mark. And I apologize. I didn't get to ask your capital gains question, Mark. Okay. <laughs> well, no capital gains question, because remember, capital gains is just um, an example of, of higher taxes on saving and investment. And we want to have, we want to enact what um, Bob Carroll suggests in that book of his, uh, following the, the work that David Bradford has done. But on that note, why don't we um, go into our tax advisory board meeting? And uh, don't forget, we have to switch the Zoom links for the Tax Advisor Board meeting. And we would like to thank everyone who listened in our webinar today. Very good. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank Thanks, you, Bob, again. Okay. Bye-bye.